Hello, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Killer Hangover. This is episode 46. 46. I'm Beth. And I'm Bettina. This is an exciting week, Mom, because we have two episodes coming out today. Yes, we do. That's yes, right. Yes, we do. This episode and our listeners episode. And Mom, can you tell us what our listeners episode is? I would love to, darling. We have asked you all to send your personal stories to us as far as either true crime or paranormal. Um, and we have had people send them in. What we do, though, is we don't read them. We put them into a special file. And then Beth's husband, Alex, reviews them and gives them to us to read spur of the moment. So when we read them, we've never seen them. Never seen them. Um, and we plan on doing this the seventh of every month. Yep. Seventh of every month. So send us your true crime and paranormal stories. Killer hangover podcast at gmail.com. So you may be a part of next month's personal hangover stories. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't have to mention your name or we, you know, let us know if we can mention your name. Yeah. It's fun to hear your own story. Okay. So this week's episode Gosh, I'm so anxious to just jump into my story. But this week's episode is going to be a little different. This is a case that really touched me. And I've been researching it for a while. So we decided to make it a two-parter. In this episode, episode 46, which I still can't believe we're at episode 46. 46, I know. Gosh. But in this episode, we are only going to cover part one of the true crime story. So no paranormal story in this episode. But like I said, our listener's story episode was released today as well. So if you want more of us and your week can't start without hearing us share paranormal stories, you have that episode as well as this one this week. Yay. <laughs> but this can't be killer hangover without us sharing a beverage. Of course. So mom, what are we drinking this week? Okay. Well, since I'm not doing paranormal, I'm going to sit back <laughs> and enjoy <laughs> this Robert Mondavi private selection. Beth and I both really enjoy Malbec. Oh, um, of course, they have all different grapes, but it's the Malbec Mendoza 2018. I love this wine. Robert Mondavi, I think, makes great wine anyway. They yes. have that ones that that's like aged in rum barrels and aged in whiskey barrels. See, I don't and... like those. I, I don't know oh, why. Oh, I like those too. I know you do. Okay, let's just face it. I like red wine. <laughs> Let's just be honest with ourselves here, Mom. <laughs> Cheers, Mom. Cheers. Okay, so like I said, this is going to be part one of the story. This story was a recommendation from one of our listeners, Teresa. She sent us the recommendation a while ago. Teresa, I don't know if I should be mad at you for this one or thankful. Oh, no. Because I've literally been kind of looking into it and starting to research since you sent us the case, which I believe was back in the summer of this long year of 2020. Wow. <laughs> yes. And I know you've been busy the last three weeks nonstop <laughs> looking into this. Honestly, mom, I've really become very attached to this case. And I've really learned a lot in researching this case. The biggest thing I learned is, well, mom, so you know that game Telephone, right? Right. You played as a kid, how over time the words and the phrase whispered to the person next to you changes over time. Mm -hmm. 
This is pretty prevalent in this case. And to be honest, I'm sure that's pretty common in a lot of cases. Right. Which is probably really upsetting to a lot of the victim's loved ones. When mom and I find a case that we want to cover, we dig on Google, we search YouTube, we read books when we can, we watch the documentaries when they're available to us. And yeah, maybe some facts were a tad different from one podcast to the other. But we really, really try our hardest to stick to the facts. Exactly. And if something is totally off on on a subject... I will either find something that correlates with one of those mm-hmm. or else I won't even bring it up. Because either I don't bring it up or I'll tell you like, these are the two things I exactly. read and I'm just going to put them out there. Exactly. So, you know. so we say all this because when I was doing the research for this case, all of the documentaries, all of the podcasts, every everything I found was all based around a book, Under the Trestle by Ron Peterson Jr., which... Reminds you a little bit of of in, in cold blood. Yes, exactly. So I read this book. Well, let's be honest. I listened to the book. There's no way I can sit and read a book anymore. It's okay. I love audio <laughs> books. Oh my gosh, books on tape. Yes. This is not an ad, but <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, audio books are so great. I listen probably to about three a week. Oh my so. gosh, I listened to this book, and it was a really great book. Rom Peterson Jr. did a lot of research for his book. He read through all the accounts at the trial. And because he attended the same college as the victim, Radford University, he knew some people and was able to ask some questions. So I am not knocking this book. It's an excellent book. Okay. Keep that in mind. Did he know know the victim if they went to the same school or was it a different time? Significant, way different times. Yeah. Sorry. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it did remind me of Capote and his book In Cold Blood in the way that the Clutter family had been bulked up into just that, that book and murders. Mm -hmm. So me being me and wanting to be creative and I kept hearing the story being told the exact same way over and over and over. Right. I wanted to find a different way to tell it. So I just started doing more digging and I discovered a YouTube channel made by the victim's sister. Wow. That was only just created this year, only eight months ago. And the latest video had only been added just two months ago. Oh, my goodness. So in actuality, had we jumped on it right away when Teresa sent it to us, we would have missed these. Right. So I would have missed all of these new updates and all of these corrections. It's just a 12 episode series, if you even want to call it that, but it's 12 videos of this woman now in her 60s, her late 60s, sharing the victim, her sister, Gina's story. Gina Renee Hall is the victim I'm advocating for this week and next week. I'll be honest, after doing all the research I did, and especially after watching the videos done by Delena, Gina's sister, I feel like I know Gina. I know Gina a lot better now than I did walking away from the book under the trestle and the few documentaries and podcasts out there about her. And from what I've come to know about Gina is that she truly was special and her story deserves to be told. But one person who really knew Gina was Delena and getting facts from her, different facts, and in my opinion, more trustworthy facts. It really opened my eyes. Right. Delena made a great point in her videos. She made 
a lot of points on the case, corrected a lot of facts that have been told over the years in this game of telephone. Nice. But her biggest one is that this story has been told and sensationalized time and time again, all based on this incomplete truth. In a message she wrote to me personally, she repeated again what she repeated in her videos. She was sharing Gina's voice, and she wanted me to really drive forth the fact that that composed story that was being repeated over and over again was just that, a composed story, a web of lies. Oh, no. The story being told in the books and the documentaries and the podcasts are all based on the story given by the murderer's best friend. Oh, okay. His testimony has become the basis of how this story has been told over the years. His story has become Gina's narrative. And that's not fair. No. And Delana's point is, what about Gina's story? Right. The same thing that mom and I have repeated on this podcast, that we want to advocate for the victims. victims. Right. So this case got really long and it was a lot of research. And I even told mom, I don't even know if I can do it because it's going to be really long. But when I told her the basis of it, she said, we need to advocate for the victim. Just make it a two-parter. It was an easy decision. So I'm going to do my best to avoid the game of telephone. I'm going to conduct this quote-unquote true crime story the best I can, using the facts I learned from Delena and from what I've researched. I wasn't there. I didn't live this tragedy, but I promise to do my best at giving Gina her voice in this. This case is especially big because it is a no-body case, Virginia's first no-body case. And to this day is one of Virginia's most comprehensive body searches. There was a conviction without a body. Wow. At this time, I believe this was only the fifth ever in the United States. Holy smokes. But think about that for a second. It's not enough that this man took Gina from this world, but he makes it worse by not disclosing anything about the case or what he did with Gina's body. So there's no closure. There's no... Oh, it's disgust. He's disgusting to me. The whole no body, no murder thing is really interesting. Historically, you needed a body to prove the crime. It transferred here to America from English common law. I guess there were three people charged for a murder and they were hung. But two years later, the person the showed up. victim came waltzing back into town and What's up? he well he said he would, had been kidnapped but yeah. not by those three men that were hung and that's oh. it was yeah now this horrible crime happened in 1980 and it's not like delena dwelled on her sister's death she did move on and live her life mm-hmm. i'm sure just as gina would have wanted her to but when god started giving her miraculous signs as she calls them an evidence and a secret from a witness came out in 2016. Delena set forth in finding her sister. A secret came out that from 1980 to 2016? Yes. That's when the witness... A huge witness testimony came out in 2016. But had the witness already spoken, it was just mm. put in the secret nope. or did the witness nope. come forward came in forward 2016? Came forward in 2016. Oh, jeez. So Delena sets forth in finding her sister, and in doing so, DNA has been found with the help of trained cadaver dogs and newly invented scientific instruments. Even a small fragment of a bone from Gina has been found. Oh. This DNA has all been found spread out in different parts of New Bern, Virginia. This formed some kind of a story for Delena, 
I guess you could say it helped start to tell Gina's side of the story. Right. I honestly am not sure I believe the story that's been told time and time again. That basically boy meets girl. Girl refuses boy's sexual advances. Boy grows angry and kills girl. Of course, I'll let you make your own opinion of the case. But I don't believe the story to be that straightforward or that that simplified. I think there's way more to the story. Again, that's my opinion. But unfortunately, the facts are that we may never really know the truth of what happened. But based on recent discovered scientific evidence and Elena's facts about her sister, we are one step closer to being able to really tell Gina's side of the story. Let's begin by introducing Gina Renee Hall. You Google her and it's, quote, a girl who went missing after dancing with a man in a nightclub, unquote, or a girl last seen leaving a bar with a man heading off to a lake cabin. That's it. That's all that's or on Or just it? even a murdered woman never found in Virginia. Oh, my gosh. To have your whole self be summed up like that. That's exactly. horrible. She was more than that. Just like the Clutter family we talked about in episode 26, they were real people. So was Gina. She is the hero in all of this in the end. She had humor and a smile that lit up a room. She was active in her church, was close with her family, and from what I understand, really liked to live a small life, a simple life, surrounded in a little bubble of the ones she loved and held dear. See, she knew what and who really mattered to her because at the young age of two, she survived a terrible accident. Mm. One day, the little toddler got too close to the stove and her pajamas caught fire. Oh, my gosh. Leaving third degree burns all over the side of her body. (gasps) Oh, my God. The extreme pain in such a young age had to have been just terrible. I chatted with my sister about these burns. She's an emergency room doctor. And without getting too scientific and gruesome about it all, basically, these severe burns left a definitive change in Gina's skin. So the skin doesn't grow back. Mm hmm. It's just left basically a scar built up over the years with a lot of pain. At a young age, Gina required many, many life altering surgeries. Oh, geez. I'll use Delena's words here. Quote, during her six month recovery in the University of Virginia Hospital burn ward, Gina undoubtedly learned compassion from her experiences with the many caring nurses and doctors who became a part of her life. This caring nature extended to her family, friends, and even her pets, who always held a special place in her heart, unquote. This pain and these burns didn't necessarily hold Gina back in her life. She made adjustments, wearing longer sleeves and pants even in the hot summers. And she lived her life. She was voted most popular in her senior class at Coburn High School and was active in activities, even played sports, which in the 70s is not really a girl thing to do. Right. Gina rocked it. She played tennis and golf. And in high school, there wasn't a girl's golf team. So she played on the boys team. Good for her. And her daddy would brag about how she'd beat all the boys. (laughs) The burns did make her a bit self-conscious as she grew up through her teen years. She expressed her concerns and self-conscious feelings with her sister, Delena. The thoughts of ever being with a boy in a more mature nature made Gina very nervous Mm -hmm. and made her feel very vulnerable. And because of this, Gina didn't really date. She had male friends from golf or tennis and such, but didn't really date. Mm -hmm. And if she did 
date and I put air quotes around the date because it was very conservative and mature dating. Maybe for our younger listeners, we can call it Duggar dating. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) I mean, do you know about the Duggars? Oh, no, no, no. They're on the magazines when you stand in the shopping line. (laughs) (laughs) It's just very conservative dating, like barely even hold hands. You're just getting to know somebody. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is a fact about Gina I don't think is driven home enough in other things I researched. Gina was pure. She lived life clean and happy. I mean, she went out and had a good time, but she wasn't doing drugs or smoking. Heck, I read that she barely even drank at all. Wow. That most of the time she ordered virgin cocktails when she went out with her girlfriends when she did get older and into college. Her college friends said that she was always the girl to go home early, even if it was by herself. But they also said that Gina lit up a room the most when she was dancing. Delena writes, quote, Gina was always her happiest when she was dancing. Dancing became the creative outlet for her talent, spending countless hours teaching the younger children dance and helping choreograph the routines, unquote. And dancing is what 18-year-old Gina was setting out to do on the evening of June 29, 1980. She had just finished her midterms from the summer semester of her freshman year at Radford. She was studying and working hard to be a nurse. Heck, she was just taking summer courses. I mean, she was taking life seriously. Yeah, she was going for it. Is Delena younger? Older. Older sister. Delena okay. is her older sister. She was, I believe she had just finished her master's. She was working on her master's at the same school. Oh, okay. She had worked hard and wanted to go out and celebrate. Gina and her sister Delena were living together in an apartment near the college. Oh, so they were close. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the two had planned to go out dancing together, but now here's the beginning of the game of telephone. Some stories claim that Delena wanted to stay in because she was too tired from her studies or because she just last minute decided she didn't want to go. Or some other stories I heard said that she had not finished her midterms yet. But Delena is honest in her videos and says that the fact was that she and her boyfriend at the time, her now husband, had gotten into their first really big fight. She wasn't up for dancing. So Gina, she did something she had never done before. She got dressed up and planned on going out all on her own. Remember again, I reiterate, she lived a small life, a simple life, a pure life. Gina just wanted to dance. She dressed in some white slacks, a white jacket, and a purple bodysuit with matching purple heels. (laughs) She looked great. She felt great and tried to pass on this positivity to her sister Delena as she left that evening, giving her advice saying, quote, Sis, listen to your heart, not your head, unquote. Gina drove the sisters' shared browned, two-toned Monte Carlo to the Marriott Inn in Blacksburg, Virginia. From what I understand, this is more of a dance lounge kind of okay. a thing. Okay. Because the drinking age in Virginia at the time was 18, There would have been age ranges from 18 to 30s. Or let's be honest, 16 maybe. (laughs) If you're Bettina. (laughs) (laughs) The place was not just a bar like some of the resources claim it to be. It had a dress code in place. Men had to wear long pants and collared shirts. And women weren't allowed tube tops or mini skirts. Their skirts or their shorts actually had to be at least mid thigh for them to be let in. The tips of your fingers, mm-hmm. like at the Catholic school you went to. 
so short. Oh my gosh, that was so annoying. <laughs> Especially when you were like awkward like me and I had like these really long legs and like long length. Okay, anyway. <laughs> so this place was really known for dancing and it really would have been very noisy. Not a kind of sit and chat kind right, of a place. gotcha. But this is where you'd come and dance. And by the time that Gina would have gotten there, it would have been standing room only. Now, she didn't know anybody. So, you know, this is before cell phones where you can call one another and say what time you go in and right. all that. There was no friend set to meet up with her there. Maybe they had discussed, like, are you going tonight? I don't know. Maybe you'll see you there. Okay. So we'll get to the witness testimonies and everything. But... She would have known maybe some people bobbing around there as acquaintances or whatnot. Okay. But there was no plan to go and meet I anybody. Gotcha. Knowing that Gina went to dance, I did look it up to see what maybe she could have been dancing to that night. Elton John had just released the summer of 1980s hit, It's Still Rock and Roll to Me. Magic by Olivia Newton-John had been named the top hit that summer. And Funky Town was a one-hit wonder of the time. Hey, that's the year I graduated from high school. So. And Saturday <laughs> Night Fever was still a very popular like thing. So kind of leaving the disco age into like that rock and roll age is kind of where you are right here. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, that's good music. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> of course, I'm only assuming that was the music that was playing there that night. The truth is... We don't know exactly what happened in there. Witness statements were all over the place from the time that Gina got there around 11 that night to the time she left around midnight. Some witnesses claim they saw Gina there at a table with some girls. So we can assume she met up with some acquaintances or or maybe some friends. Some said they saw her dancing with a man, specifically a white male, blonde, reddish hair, stocky build with glasses. Delena has assumed this was a friend of Gina's from the movie theater she'd worked at. Only one statement from a patron of the Marriott Inn that night gave a very specific description of Gina and her time spent there in the Marriott Inn lounge. And it is this statement and testimony that has become the end-all, be-all storyline told time and time again and basically summarizing this evening. This statement came from Bill King, and here the composed story begins. Bill King is specific in telling police what Gina was wearing that night. According to the notes from the trooper on the case at the time, he said, quote, she wore a white pantsuit with a purple bodysuit under it, unquote. He also said that she danced to four or five songs with his friend, Stephen Epperly. I'll get into his full statement here in a bit, but first I need to introduce you to these men. I'm not going to go into much detail about them. Other podcasts and even the book Under the Trestle will give you a more in-depth history of these men and their background. And Mm -hmm. again, go read the book. It's very good. I am not knocking the book by any means. And I'm not saying that their childhood or facts about their lives don't matter. They do. They help make the men into who they are today. Right. But I'm just going to summarize it all, give you kind of the spark note version of it all and give you the important facts. So Bill King and Stephen Epperly, they're the key players in all of this. The two men were in their late 20s at the time. The two were close friends, but not close friends. Hmm? Honestly, it's weird because some of King's statements come across that Epperly annoyed him or that Epperly invited himself to things or was the group's kind of like tag along. But if that's the case, Stephen Epperly did pretty well with his mooching because he and King were always seen around town together. (laughs) Okay. 
Even as children, the two were seen as a pair of swords. Oh, come on. The two played football with one another in high school and then later in college at Virginia Tech. Actually, to be clear, Epperly didn't play all that much at Virginia Tech. I don't think he got much further than the practice squad. But <laughs> okay. The two were not just teammates. They were also friends growing up in Radford. Now, I'm a big believer in the saying that actions speak louder than words. And the actions of these two men, well, always seen together, proved a little more than just casual friends to me. They were like best friends. Or- yeah, basically. That's how I read into it. Even at the trial, Ronald, Bill King's stepfather, said that it was normal for Stephen Epperly to be at their lake house, especially during the summers. From first appearances, Stephen Epperly was not just a tag-along. He was handsome and charismatic. And honestly, I hate to say it, but he seems like he would make a very good first impression. But he had a dark history. You wouldn't be able to see any of that bringing him up in court records because charges never held. To sum up Epperly's college phase in life, he wasn't ever really good in school. Plus, his family had a hard time affording it. Mm. He bounced around from community college and then Virginia Tech. His love of football kind of kept him going. He bulked up and he worked really hard at football, but it just wasn't ever enough to really cut it. Epperly was known to be a bit of a hothead, a big guy that lifted weights, kept in good shape, and from what I understand, was feared. If someone bumped him in the bar and the apology didn't seem apologetic enough for him, he would punch him. Oh, geez, one of those bullies. I mean, a broken jaw kind of punch. Police knew his roughness, too. One policeman told a story about how one night he was called to a bar for a big brawl. The cop came in and tried to break it up, but was having a really hard time at doing it. From behind him, he hears a man yell, I got your back, officer. And the brawl stopped. These men in the fight weren't afraid of an armed police officer. They were afraid of... They were afraid of Stephen Epperly. Holy smokes. Police at one point had been called to the Epperly home for a domestic dispute when Stephen had hit his younger sister and his mother. Oh. His mother, a few hours after record was taken, decided not to press charges on her son. Mm -mm. He had also been acquitted of any sexual assault charges twice. On one occurrence, he showed up outside of an ex's window. He begged for her to let him come in and told her he was in trouble. She did. She let him in and he instantly pushed her to the floor, choking her and violently raping her. It wasn't until her young infant started crying in the next room did he let her go to care for her baby. She escaped, showed up at the police station, beaten and bruised, but Stephen Epperly was acquitted. She didn't bring charges against him? Or she did. What? They went to court. He was acquitted. How? How? The second time was similar, choking, beating, and raping a woman. But then afterwards, he got really emotional. It's really weird. And he's like, do you know what I just did to you? (laughs) I just raped you. (laughs) And he's like crying about it. The woman begged and pleaded that she wouldn't go and tell police. And he let her go. And she went straight to the police. Again, court and then acquitted. He was always acquitted or let off the hook. And he kind of just had that arrogant, you can't touch me attitude. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know this guy. I'm already getting like. In Under the Trestle, the book I mentioned at the beginning by Ron Peterson Jr. He shares a story that a policeman had shared that one day at a stoplight or a stop sign, Epperly drives up next to the policeman and asks them if his girlfriend can press charges against him for rape. He went on to tell them that that night he'd gone out to the bars, he'd gotten drunk, and when he got home, his girlfriend turned him down for sex, but he made her anyway. The policeman told him, um, yeah, she could most definitely press charges. And then they go their separate ways. 
Well, obviously, the police goes and checks on this woman the next day. Good. And asks her about the situation. She never pressed charges. But just the fact that he drove up and asked this kind of a question, Uh just this arrogant kind of a question, it, it does come back and haunt him in the end. This arrogant kind of a question will help put him away eventually. But unfortunately for Gina, not soon enough. Mm-hmm. Epperly graduated and received a degree from college. But after college, he just kind of bounced around jobs. He was a bouncer. He got his real estate license for a time and didn't sell one listing. <laughs> During the summer 1980, he was working as a grounds maintenance worker on the campus at Radford and was living with his parents or couch surfing. So to sum it up, Epperly was hot-headed, he was a sexual predator, he was arrogant, and felt that he was entitled. And he was there at the Marriott Inn that night, searching for his next prey. Dish. Bill King and Stephen Epperly were there at the Marriott Inn on the evening of June 29, 1980, with a group of three other guys, all of which had played football together, hung out lifting weights during the day, and drank and partied together on the weekends. The evening had begun with the plan that King and the three guys were to all drive out to the Marriott Inn Lounge together for a night out. Apparently, Epperly invited himself, along again. which changed plans up a bit. So instead, King told the guys to go on ahead and to meet he and Epperly at the Marriott Inn at 11 o'clock. So from King's testimony, he went and picked Epperly up from his parents' house around 8.30. Epperly's car wasn't working, so he was getting rides from people. I think he had like a hole in his radiator or something. I don't know anything about cars, but for some reason that mooch or is, two. Yeah. So he picks him up and the two drive out to Bill's mom and stepdad's lake house. Apparently he had been asked to keep an eye on the home for the week. that They were on vacation at Myrtle Beach because there had been some vandalism at local lakefront properties. Looking into that statement, Delena has never found any proof of this vandalism. And here is where I want to remind you that this timeline these statements are all kings keep in mind how i started this podcast there are always two sides to every story and this is just king's side of the story right gina's not here to tell her side but maybe a witness there on the lake in his boat fishing that night can help a little bit apparently king and epperly did go check on the lake house that night before heading to the marriott inn The fishermen saw two men arrive at the house and watched as the two walked around the side of the home and entered the home from the ground level sliding back door. Now, this is a little bit of information I want you to keep in mind. It'll come back. But the fishermen watched the men walk around the home. One stayed downstairs and looked around and the other went upstairs and looked around. Keep in mind, too, this is a large three-story lake house. Oh, wow. Pretty fancy. A lot of stories I first listened to when I started researching for this episode called it a cabin and made it sound like a quaint little cabin or a small little house on the lake. No. (laughs) The fisherman said the two looked to be looking for something, although he can't be sure. The two men then exited the home from the back sliding back door, heading up the hill around the home to the front and drove away. Okay. Okay. Now, here's where King's story picks back up. He claims that Epperly and he had talked about that if one of them picked up a girl that night, they could come back to the lake house. So that was kind of the plan from the get-go, it seems, to pick up girls. King testified that he and Epperly and the three other guys all pulled into the parking lot of the Marriott Inn Lounge at the same time, along with Gina driving her Monte Carlo. Mm -hmm. They all parked next to one another. 
They don't know each other. Right. They've never met. He claimed he saw her walk in and that he saw her inside with friends. And then he even gave that statement that Epperly asked her to dance and they did for four to five songs. But like I said, King's statement here cross-referenced with others just don't add up. There were two witness statements from two women, Bonnie and Kim, that differ from King's and have seemed to be overlooked over the years. It's about a 30-minute timeline from Gina's night at the Marriott Inn that I believe sets the tone for the terrible occurrence later in the evening. Bonnie and Kim were not students. They were in about their 30s, I believe, and were sitting at a table enjoying a couple cocktails, watching everybody dance. Mm -hmm. They gave statements saying they were enjoying their cocktails when Gina, a stranger to them, came up to their table asking if she could stay there for a while because she was trying to avoid a guy that was bothering her on the dance floor. Oh. Apparently, he was making her uncomfortable, possibly harassing her. I mean, he was doing something to make her go find comfort in strangers. Right. Kim and Bonnie both reported to police that the man even came to their table at a point, leading one of them to tell him off. No means no, man. Go away. Right. It's all very confusing because all of this back and forth and dancing. Remember, somebody saw her dancing with a guy with glasses. Epperly does not have glasses. Okay. It's not the same guy. Oh, okay. All of this back and forth. So you have these two women giving their statement that she was there for 30 minutes at their table avoiding some guy. You have somebody saying that they saw saw her dancing on the dance floor with a guy with glasses that does not fit Epperly's description at all. And then you have King saying that she danced with Epperly for four to five songs. Yeah. That's a long time dancing together. That one doesn't ring true. Were the witnesses the ladies at the table? I, I tend to go to their side um were they able to describe the man they were and unfortunately when they went to the police station they showed them a very old picture of epperly and they couldn't quite say it was him or not later on because i believe it's bonnie that followed through around the time of the trial they didn't use any of these statements in the trial oh my gosh she was just there for a little over an hour too So how did all of this happen in little over an hour? One thing to say, too, is that Epperly wasn't a guy to just dance with a girl. Many acquaintances even said that. Epperly was a guy that danced with a girl because, well, to be blunt, he expected sex afterwards. Even Bill King basically stated as such. So if Epperly was seen dancing with Gina or any other woman for that matter, it was for one thing. And it was kind of justified. Boys will be boys kind of a thing. Mm. Oh, man, there goes Epperly again. And I have to take a moment here and point out another thing from the storyline that keeps being replayed out here. They claim that Gina was the she was there dancing innocently and that she had, you know, she was very naive to how she was affecting Stephen Epperly. She was a small town girl and she didn't know the effects her dancing was having on a man. I'm sorry, but that's victim blaming to me. Exactly. If a girl wants to go and celebrate her midterms and a girl wants to go and dance. dance? Has she nothing be, to do with that. She should be able to go and dance without being worried about being murdered. It's not. No, no, I hate that. So I'm gonna get off my soapbox now, but no. King gave his statement of seeing Gina and Epperly dance and then said that a little after midnight, Epperly came up to him and asked him for the lake house key. King told him that he had left the lake house key in his car so he would walk them out to his car to go get it. Before they reached the doors, Epperly introduced Gina to King. 
Witnesses report seeing Gina walk out with King and Epperly behind her. So, okay. Now, there are no surveillance cameras. This is 1980. Yeah. Those weren't a thing then. So, again, all we have to go by are words from Bill King. So, it could be that she was ready to leave and walked out and these guys followed her? He says that out in the parking lot, Epperly asked for King's car keys. King laughed at this. He had apparently taken his stepdad's T-Bird out that night. He was allowed to, but that's what he was driving. He's like, you're not driving my nice car. Uh, no, but here's the lake house key. The one key to the lake house that he had. Here he also mentions that Gina seemed confused at this time. Like, Maybe she was under the impression that a group of them was heading out to the lake house or maybe that King was driving or something. But Epperly asserted himself into her car oh. and was kind of gave her no option. And they drove off towards King's family lake house. At this point, until around 1, 1.30 a.m., I can't tell you what happened. I can tell you what I assume happened. I can share my opinion with you. But looking at facts I've just laid out for you, in your opinion, does Gina Hall seem like a girl that would leave this dance spot with a man she had just met an hour or so before? No, no not at all. A man about 10 years older than her, by the way. And would she be doing so willingly? Mm-mm. Remember, we're talking about Gina, the girl that lived purely. She didn't date. She had never been sexually active with the man. She was nervous and self-conscious about her body. Would that girl have willingly left with this man to the lake? I don't know about you, but I don't think so. Mm -mm, that makes sense. The fact is we may never know the details. Cadaver Dogs just this year discovered some of Gina's DNA on a road just outside the Marriott Inn. It's a paved private driveway now, but then it would have been a grassy field area next to the road. Does this hold answers? Why is her DNA there? Jeez, no kidding. What really holds an answer is a phone call. Just a few words shared between sisters. But in these few words, Gina really shows to be the hero in all of this. Around 1 or 1.30, Delena woke to the phone ringing. Delena had not gone out that night and was actually sleeping in Gina's bed that night. Now, this conversation has changed over time through that game of telephone. But the exact telephone call went as followed. From Delena's testimony, her book, her website, Delena, Gina. Gina's tone sounded out of character, Delena made note of. Mm -hmm. It was apprehensive and maybe a little nervous. Delena asked Gina, where are you? Gina answered, I'm at the lake. What are you doing there? I am looking at it. Well, who are you looking at it with? Steve. And then the line goes quiet. Oh, that's eerie. What an odd call. Not a normal checking in with your sister kind of a mm -mm. call. If that were the case, wouldn't it be more like, hey, sis, just checking in. I'm out at the lake. Shouldn't be home too much later. Right. Or maybe something like, wow, you should see this house. The lake is so beautiful out here. The phone conversation is very telling to me. What happened after she said the name Steve? Right. And the phone hung up real fast. That's why I think she's the hero in all this. Because that, I don't know if they would even catch him otherwise mm. of that phone call. Quote, that phone call will haunt me until the day I die. I bet. 
Delana said in one of her videos. Tears were welling in her eyes in this video. It was very hard to watch. Because I fell asleep. Unquote. Delana fell back to sleep that night, and when she woke the next morning in Gina's empty bed and the Monte Carlo nowhere in the parking lot of the apartment complex, she knew something absolutely terrible had happened to her sister. Police tell Delana they can't do a search for Gina for 24 hours. Ugh, I hate that. She's probably out still partying or she's probably out still sleeping her hangover off. She's a college student, you know. Before police can start or do start an official search for Gina, Delana and her friends start their own search, calling around. Delana calls her dad multiple times, but this is 1980. There are no cell phones. And he was on a golf trip, I believe, at the time with the girl's stepmom, Joan. Eventually, late that night, she does get connected with her father, John Hall. He and his wife lived about two and a half hours away. And because of the late hour, he told Delana that he would head that way first thing Monday morning. Remember, I said Delana was calling around, asking friends, even calling the Marriott in a time or two. One phone call she made was to a Mrs. Fisher. She was a local to the area that Delana had gotten to know over the years. They lived in the same apartment complex. She was one of Delana's regular Avon customers. So again, because Mrs. Fisher was a local and knew the area pretty well, Delana called, mm -hmm. mentioning the last phone call she had with her sister. Lake. Steve. One thing to make note of is that Mrs. Fisher had a son. A son that had played football for a time. Oh. A son that worked out at the Barbell Club. A son that had actually been a part of that group of three guys out with Bill oh, that King night? and Steve Epperly just the night before at the Marriott Inn Lounge. A son that may just or may not know something. These dots were not connected yet at this time, but in time they will be. So this is all happening on Sunday. Monday morning, John Hall arrives at his daughter's apartment. I believe he half expected Gina to be there. Of course. But she wasn't. And he and Delena went full gear on their search. And right away they go to the police department to file a missing persons report. And I'm honestly so impressed by their own search. These two collaborated just a bit over 24 hours of Gina missing. Friends stepped up. So they had a group of friends at the apartment making phone calls. Mm -hmm. They had a group of friends out with Gina's picture going places i mean they had all these groups of friends set out to do different Great. activities wow. they had a group of friends going and even asking at the marriott inn and such but most importantly they had friends out searching for delena's and gina's monte carlo car mm -hmm. at this point they believed that one of two things had happened to gina one she had driven off a mountain somewhere she'd driven off the road and had a terrible accident yeah or just something terrible had happened Delana went to a local radio station and begged and pleaded for them to put a bulletin out for her sister as well. The station manager finally agreed after some time. It took a while. And they decided to run a 30-second public service announcement that they replayed twice every hour. Police get involved by this time, too. Seeing all these people stepping up in the search, I think, helped make it more serious to them. Mm -hmm. Seeing these people searching and so desperate in their search meant that this girl wasn't just some college girl they had originally thought her to be. She wasn't just out there avoiding her home. If she wasn't home, there was a reason. Right. Police start their own investigation as well. From what I understand, it was mostly just watching, listening, trying to form some kind of timeline. In comes Jan Fisher, the son of Mrs. Fisher, 
Now, Fisher came by the girl's apartment to kind of check on Delena. I'm assuming because his mom had told him what happened. Gotcha. Now, Fisher gives a statement that Monday that is pretty interesting to me. He states that on Saturday night, he saw Gina at the Marriott Inn. He saw her there. Remember, he was in that group of Epperly and King and the two other guys. He knew Gina because his mother knew the girls, but he also knew her because he had dated Delena's old roommate for a little bit. Okay. So he knew them and he told police this and he told them he had seen her at the Marriott Inn Saturday night. That's it. He saw her. He then finishes his statement saying that he and two of his friends left to meet up with three other girls at their apartment complex. They hung out for a while, then all went home. It's actually interesting because over time, this statement changes significantly. Now, keep in mind, this interview of Fisher was done on Monday. By police? Yes, by police. Let's make things a bit confusing and hear what Bill King had to say of that Saturday night. Now, keep in mind, he was interviewed much later, and this account is his account from his testimony in court. So Bill King stated that he and the other three guys, so the group was five, mm-hmm. Epperly left with Gina, so now gotcha. there's King and three other guys left. They stayed at the Marriott until it closed, so they stayed around 1.30. They then went to eat pancakes at an all-night breakfast joint for 45 minutes, Then the four of them went to the Terrace Apartments to visit with three girls. Hmm. Why wasn't he mentioned in Fisher's original statement? Remember, in Fisher's original statement, he stated that he and two of his friends went to those girls' apartments. Neither one of those men were ever named to be king. His testimony becomes he, those two friends, and Bill King went to those girls' apartments. Another thing to mention here, too, is those girls were never interviewed by police. Makes you wonder. Hmm. Anyway, King states that he went to those three girls' apartment with those three guys. They listened to music, talked, and apparently King saw a light on in a nearby apartment that belonged to an ex-girlfriend of his, Robin Robbins. He said he called her and asked her to go to the lake with him for a late night swim. He said this was around 3 a.m. that he called her. Wow. Now, Robin's original statement claims that he showed up outside her bedroom window knocking on her window. But maybe to him that means calling. uh, (laughs) Anyway, he picks her up and they head out to the lake house. Really? She goes? They arrive at the lake house between 3.45 and 4. I just have to take a moment here and say that when I'm out drinking and hanging out with friends, I lose track of time. Like, I don't. And they're all so, we went and had pancakes for 45 minutes. And right. And then we went here for 45 right. minutes. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, maybe that's a knock on me. I don't know. <laughs> now, here's another part of the statement that has changed over time. King testified that he and Robbins walked into the house through the garage. But an early statement, so that's what they said in testimony in court. Mm-hmm. But in early statements, Robbins remembered going through the front door and remembered him fiddling with the keys in the lock to get in. Wait, he only had one key. But wait, didn't Epperly have the only key? Yeah. Wasn't that the reason that King had walked Epperly and Gina out to the car? Another thing to mention is Robin's story changing again. 
there are a few changes she makes in her story, but one in particular is her initial is her initial story. She claimed that they arrived around three thirty, four o'clock. But her second statement, she clearly states it was four because she saw the clock as she walked in. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure right after it happened, but I am way <laughs> Yeah, after I've talked to King and he's told me so. Exactly. Regardless of how he got in, they entered the house and it was dark. Robin says that King went around making loud noises because he knew that Epperly was there with Gina and they wanted them to hear them come in. Sure. So he makes noise and they hear Epperly from the den downstairs. Bill, is that you? Yeah, I have Robin with me and we're headed out for a swim. And then Epperly says, we're about to get going because she has to get back home. Now, this whole conversation is had in the dark. Bill apparently never saw Epperly and Robbins didn't. She did or she didn't. Again, her reports change. One time she says she didn't see him. It was totally dark. She didn't. She just heard him. And the other one says that she saw him in a towel with his shirt off, drying himself off. There's a big difference there. That's a detail. I saw him. Uh, yeah. Wow. She's got, all of a sudden, she has a ton of details. Mm. First she doesn't and then she does. I don't know. But neither Bill nor Robin saw Gina. The two walked outside, did their swimming. After a few minutes, the house lights are flipped on. Epperly calls down and says that they're leaving. King reported that it must have been around 4.30 p.m. Again, I must be terrible at keeping track of time when I'm having fun. But again, Bill and Robin do not see Gina. After their swim, Bill and Robin made their way into the house through the sliding back door into the basement den. Now, I mentioned this door before from the fisherman, mm-hmm. but over time, Epperly has said that door always remained locked and no one used it. But the fisherman saw them use it. So now it's been used twice. But he also reported there was only one key and yet he had a key with Robin. And later on in a conversation, only a couple years ago, actually, on the phone with Delena, I told you this was a huge game of telephone. King talks to her, Delena, on the phone only a few years ago, and he said something along the lines of... Well, Epperly got in because there everybody knew about the key hidden under the rock or whatever. He didn't need a key from me. And Delana's like, hold on. That was your whole testimony. That's why you walked my sister and Epperly out to your car oh, was because there's geez. one key. Isn't this crazy? It's one lie packed on top of the other. So King and Robin go into the house. They go down to the den and lay on the floor. And Bill remembers feeling a wet spot on the carpet, but really not thinking too much of it. Gina and Epperly had just been down there. Maybe they too lay on the carpet in their wet suits or or maybe a towel. Regardless, he and Robin go upstairs and go to bed. Bill King and Robin woke up around 9 a.m. They take a look around the house and apparently he again steps in a wet spot in the den. But again, doesn't think anything of it. And the two would later testify in court that they really didn't notice anything odd about the house that morning. Bill took Robin back to her apartment and went to his grandma's house to pick up his four-year-old son, Todd. And the two head back to the lake house. Now, here's where I get super suspicious. Apparently, King had arranged some kind of a cookout at the lake house with that same group of guys from the night before okay. for around noon, which seems early for me for a bunch of guys in their late 20s <laughs> who basically all went to bed around 4.30 or 5 <laughs> yeah. o'clock. Yeah. But let's meet at noon for lunch. Anyway, 
So it's Stephen Epperly, Jan Fisher, Jimmy Curtis. They arrive to the cookout and play horseshoe while King swims with his son. All seems pretty innocent. The guys all testify that the afternoon seemed normal. Except for one little odd occurrence, apparently, where Epperly asked if he could have a soda. King was like, uh, yeah, you know where they are. You've been here before. So Epperly went into the house, and he apparently was in there for much longer than he should have been. When he came out, King asked, what took you so long? And he responded that he couldn't find a bottle opener. Now, these facts are all from Bill King, and honestly, it all seems innocent enough. Beth, why are you so suspicious? It seems there's more to this little story than what's repeated in all the resources I kept referring to as I researched. One of Delana's videos I watched gave one more insight. Apparently, this little cookout picnic had some, you know, locker room talk. Hey, Apperly, we saw you take a girl home. How'd that go? Well, I went swimming. She wouldn't. What was her name? Epperly said he didn't know her name but that she was from Coburn. Now here it is. Fisher asked Epperly, was her last name Hall? Epperly didn't know. And here's the real kicker to me about this little cookout. They were all out there for maybe an hour. An at one hour? According to Delana's research into the case, a cookout at noon, hours after they had all gone to bed, and they were only there for an hour? That doesn't make sense. Again, this is not as straightforward case as it has been written up to be. There are so many little facts like this that Delana has discovered throughout the years as she's gone over the case files. These case files include all the statements. Statements taken first thing on the Monday after Gina went missing to testimonies in the trial. So she found it interesting and I find it interesting that when Fisher was interviewed on Monday after this cookout that he still didn't mention anything about Stephen Epperly or Gina. But he had asked Stephen Epperly, Because remember, he knew the girls. He knew they were from Coburn. Right. He saw Gina there. Right. And he said, was her last name Hall? And even though Epperly didn't know. And then all of a sudden, Gina's missing. But in a statement to police, he just says, I saw her there. That doesn't add up. Maybe he wasn't the smartest tack in the box. I don't know him. Maybe he really didn't connect the dots. But let's look at the facts here. He knew Gina. Steve chatted about the girl that he brought home to be from Coburn. He saw Gina there at the Marriott Inn. Heck, he drove by her car. What? Parked there under the trestle on Hazel Hollow Road. Oh, he he's the either only, scared to death of Epperly or he's part of this whole thing. The only road leading to the lake house from town. That's right. That's where it was and that's where it had been. He had passed the Monte Carlo on the way out to the cookout on the way out from the cookout. By Monday, they all would have driven by that car. Even King, who parked next to the car at the Marriott and at his parents' lake house. That's what he testified. He parked next to her car at the Marriott Inn. And then he pulled up and parked next to it at the lake house. And then he passed by it on that road at least four times, left abandoned with the trunk wide open. God. Just sitting there. But Fisher's statement to police on Monday doesn't mention any of that. He saw Gina there. That's it. He could have possibly not seen her car. Again, maybe he didn't connect all these dots. But it all just seems super suspicious to me. Definitely. This is a common occurrence all throughout this case, even to this day. 
Testimonies from the days that followed Gina's disappearance are all over the board. Facts and statements have changed over time, and timelines just don't add up. And we will talk all about that and more next week. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> I can't wait. Again, if you can't go through your week without hearing us talk some paranormal stories, you just need some more of us. Our listeners episode came out today as well. That's right. Send us your stories at killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. And if that's not enough, you can join our Patreon. You will get lots of us there www.patreon.com backslash killer hangover podcast. The link to that is in the description of this episode. It's also on our Facebook, Instagram, and our website, which is www.killerhangover.wordpress.com. I hope you guys are looking forward to part two like we are. I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. Honestly, honestly. <laughs> to Gina, everyone. Mom, this was another good one. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm like, I can't wait till you tell me. But then part of me, I'm just so upset. I'm just so Sorry. mad. I'm just so Sorry. like, uh, okay. Cheers, mama. Cheers. Love you, kid.